0: I started last week looking at the titles given to Jesus in that video that we saw earlier from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a prophecy of the coming Christ that was given hundreds of years before his birth. This prophecy or birth announcement tells us that this child would not be no ordinary child. This child would be extraordinary. According to Isaiah, he'd be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Last week, we looked at what does it mean for Jesus to be our wonderful counsellor? Well, today, we're covering the next one. We're going to discover what does he mean when he says... Sorry, didn't work. Just go click. Mighty God. Do you know, I remember when I first saw this title in the verse from Isaiah. To be honest, I struggled a little bit with Jesus given this title... Not from the point of view of I struggled with the title itself, but how does it work? I mean, think about it. The saviour child that Isaiah is promising is sent from God and will be called God. That means somehow at the same time, Jesus, Jesus is sent into this world by God and is God. So does that mean God is sending himself? That sounds impossible to me. Then you add to this the fact that all throughout the Old Testament, the claim is made quite clearly, how many gods are there? One. Even Isaiah himself later in the book in chapter 44 verse 6 says, The Lord, the King of Israel, and the one who saves us and sets us free from sin, the Lord of all ages says, I am the first, I am the last, there is no God beside me. Notice there, God says there's not even a God beside him. Even when Jesus walked this earth, he made a definite distinction between him himself and God. When someone called him good, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God himself. Then when asked about his second coming, he was told, but no one knows that except for my Father in heaven. So as you can see in Jesus' words, he drew a distinct difference between himself and God. God. Did God send himself? I'm not sure if you've ever spoken to JWs on this topic. Michelle and I had neighbours that were JWs uh, when we lived in Adelaide. And I know for them and other religions, they state this promised child that Isaiah mentions here is not really God. What's their reason? Well, they told me this. He's called Mighty God, but he's not called Almighty God. And so they can see that Jesus is a mighty God in the sense of being very powerful, a very spiritual being, but he's not the one and only true almighty God. As I said, this is a very important argument for Jehovah's Witnesses and other religions because they want to take away Jesus' divinity. But are they right? Told you, this idea I've struggled with. Haven't the foundations of the Christian faith always been based on the fact that Jesus is Emmanuel? Jesus is God with us. So who is right? Could you argue your point with a JW on this? Before we explore or pull this apart, let's pray for wisdom in what we're about to do. Father God in heaven, I thank you for our day and I thank you for what we celebrate at Christmas time and for these great, fantastic words that we read in Isaiah, the birth of your son and who he will be. Father, I pray as we unpack this today that you'll give us wisdom and guidance, but more importantly, you'll give us encouragement in pointing out who Jesus really is. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. I'm sure you understand the first thing we need to do to gain wisdom and understanding is ask ourselves this question. What is the meaning of mighty God here in the book of Isaiah? What's Isaiah writing about? Well, I'm happy to say when we explore this, we do have a bit of a theological argument here. And it's all tied up with the meaning of the words Isaiah uses. There are two words he uses, and it is this. El Gabor. The word El in Hebrew simply means God. It is used 240 times in the Old Testament. But what's interesting is this. In those 240 times, never do we see this word earl used for a false or lesser God. Then add to this 213 times, this word is unquestionably translated as reflecting the one true The Almighty, the Saving, the Merciful, the Loving, the Rock-Solid, the Commandment-Giving, Holy God. When the Old Testament states there is no God but Jehovah, most times the word that is used for that reference is Earl. You guessed it. This is the very word that Isaiah uses. The exact same word for God used in Isaiah 9-6 for the Promised Messiah. Because of this, Isaiah 9:6 is rather clear. This promised child who will be called mighty God is Earl, is Jehovah, is God. He's not some lesser God. He's not some, by definition, a false God. Since there is only one true Earl, God, and there will never be another, Jesus is El Gabor. He is the mighty God. How does this happen? How does God send himself as Jesus? Well, I'm here to give you the answer today. And my answer is this. I have no idea. I don't know. Sure, I know all about the Christmas part with Mary and the angel and the conception. But I can't begin to know or comprehend how Jesus could be present at the creation of the world as the word. And then thousand years later come to earth as that word made flesh but here's the good news i don't have to understand how jesus and god does this in order to believe it jesus said in mark 9:23 all things are possible to those who what believe believe i will never fully understand how this works out logically i will never be able to explain it but i can still accept it and believe it why Because God's word tells me so. When people place God in a box of their own understanding, they are destroying God. To reject Jesus as God is to reject God. To reject Jesus as Earl is to reject Earl. When people deny that Jesus is God, they make a God of their own choosing. And then instead of worshipping and serving the revealed holy almighty God, instead of worshipping the great God of the Bible revealed throughout the eternal presence of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they serve a God who isn't there. They're like the old ones in the Old Testament that make their own and worship them. So that's Earl. What about this word Gabor? Well, obviously, you guessed it, it means mighty. Have you ever stopped to think, what is the meaning of this word mighty? What images do you think of when you hear the word mighty? I guess for some you go back to the old cartoon of Mighty Mouse. Or maybe you think of Superman, he's mighty. Mighty is a powerful word. But for me what makes this word even more powerful is the meaning behind it in Isaiah. To look at what the prophet meant when he used this word to describe Jesus, I want to look at another passage where the same word is used. And it comes from Zephaniah, and it is this. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Just like Isaiah, Zephaniah lived in a time of hopelessness, a time of darkness, a time of despair, a time when most people were corrupt. People couldn't get justice. Their enemies were all around them and there was no one who could save them who could be trusted. But against that backdrop, Zephaniah gave this beautiful picture. Do you see that picture, what he's portraying? In this time of hopelessness, in this time of darkness, corruption and despair, the people may think there is no Earl, there is no Jehovah, but there is. In fact, he's with you. He takes great delight in you. He quiets you with his love and he rejoices over you with singing. But catch the word mighty in his passage. How is it used? It is this. He is mighty to save. A God who is mighty strong to save us. And yes, this word is what Zechariah and Isaiah use with this meaning in mind. So when Isaiah claims that this coming child will be a mighty God... He is claiming this. This child would be a God who is mighty strong to save us. The word Gabor is always tied up with saving. But what makes this promised child mighty to save? Well, now I want to give you some reasons you can boldly believe. Jesus is our mighty God, our El Gabor, able to save. And these qualities that I'm looking at today are very important when it comes to being saved. In fact, without these qualities, you cannot be saved. So what are these qualities that Jesus has? Well, the first one is this. He knows where you are. My daughter Zoe worked as a journalist for News Corp. And um, I remember when she took the job and she'd been in a few months, she really hated it. And I said, "Wow, what's going on and everything? And she said, Dad, everything I write gets changed to negative by the editor. All they want is the negative, the negative, the negative. And the editor said, Zoe, we want that because that's what sells. I remember my older brother who's worked in the media industry since leaving high school told my daughter Zoe about this. He said, Zoe, negative sells. People want to see despair in the lives of others. So then their lives don't seem so bad. I guess this is no surprise to us because all we need to do is do this pick up a newspaper, turn on your TV, or turn into some social media website. When we do that, we become quickly aware we live in a pretty bad world. And that's what people want to portray. Our media is full of negative images and footages that are confronting. I mean, just take the events over the past few months. What's been the main focus of our media? The floods. The disaster of the floods. Now, I know these events are horrible. I know they're disastrous within themselves. But I also can't help but think there's a reason that makes them more horrible and disastrous. What's the reason? Things like floods, things like natural disasters, make people helpless. Events like these place people in the position of needing help to be saved. But more than that, In times of crisis, the help we need most to be saved has to come from someone else. When people have lost everything, the help they need cannot come from themselves. They need someone beyond themselves who can come and save them. So for those caught up in these events, they they have not only experienced the feeling of hopelessness, they have learnt the feeling of being dependent on someone else to save them someone mightier than themselves. Well, not that I wish these on anyone. I don't want anyone to face disasters like this. But if you've ever found yourself in that kind of situation, a situation where you need help, but more than that, the help you need can only come from someone else, then you know it's horrible. If you say, yep, I've experienced that situation of needing to be rescued by someone else, you know it's not a fun feeling. But if you say, no, I've never experienced it, I want to tell you, you are 100% wrong. Sure, it may be possible to go through life and never face a physical situation where you need help or rescuing by someone else. That may be true. But every single person under the sun faces this problem on a spiritual level. While it's sad and frustrating to face horrible situations in life where you need help physically, I can't help but think that it's even sadder and more frustrating to face them on a spiritual level. When you are lost or off track spiritually, we need someone who can rescue us. We need someone who can save us. We need someone who is mighty. Do you know when it comes to being saved or rescued, knowing where you are is the most important thing. So many people go missing and are never saved. Why? Because they're never found. You can't save someone unless you know where they are. So we understand when it comes to being saved or rescued in the physical sense, knowing where you are is one of the most important things. Well, understand this. It is also true in the spiritual sense. To be saved spiritually, someone needs to know where you are. And the great news is this. Jesus is our mighty God who knows where you are. I think one of the greatest examples of this is the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well. Do you remember how it went? Jesus came to the well and found a Samaritan woman there. He speaks to her and asks her for a drink of water. She's taken back a bit because it was not proper for a Samaritan and a Jew to hold a conversation, especially between a man and a woman. The conversation keeps going and they continue to talk about water. Jesus tells her that he can give her living water and that she will never thirst again. She becomes interested and she says, Oh, give me some. Do you remember what happens next? Jesus says, Okay, go get your husband and come here. The woman is put on the spot. Her lifestyle is exposed. And she says to Jesus, I can't do that. I have no husband. Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He exposes her lifestyle even more. He says to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five. And the man you're with now, he's not even your husband. Kapow. Jesus knew exactly, exactly where this woman was. I can't help but how scary would have that been for that woman, listening to those words. Everything about this woman was completely known to Jesus. Jesus knew her life. He knew her heart. He knew her lifestyle so much. He not only knew what she'd done, he also knew who she'd done it with. As I said, scary. How scary would that have been? Well, something even more scarier when I read this passage is this. He knows the exact same thing about me. He knows the exact same thing about you. Our heart and our lifestyle are completely known to Jesus. He knows where you are, and He knows in and He knows what your life better than you know it yourself. Jesus knows what roads you've traveled. He knows what good turns or decisions you've made in your life. He knows what dead-end streets you've been down. He knows the times you were close to him. He knows the times that you've pushed him away. Remember, to be saved spiritually, someone needs to know where you are. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus knows right where you are spiritually. He doesn't need a search party. He doesn't need a crystal ball. He knows the spiritual shape you are in because he is El Gabor, because he's a mighty God, mighty to save. And he still loves you and he's still willing to save. But here's an important point or an important question to ask yourself Do you know where you are spiritually? How is your walk with God going? How is spending time with him and his word going? How is living out the greatest commandment of loving God and loving others going for you? Is this mighty God a priority in your life or is it a pain? Part of being saved by Jesus is reaching safety in knowing right where you are spiritually. Part of allowing this mighty God to work in our lives is knowing and acknowledging that we are lost. We are helpless. We can't go on any further without the help of someone else. Part of allowing this mighty God to work in our life is knowing and acknowledging the bad decisions and choices we've made. So where are you? Where are you at? Well, if you're in despair, if you are lost, always remember Jesus is our mighty God who can save us because spiritually he knows where you are. The second thing I learned from this is this. He knows what shape you're in. For those of you that have done first aid and used Dr. A, B, C, the D is for danger. What's the R? Response. What's that all about? Why do people look for danger and then try to get response? You want response because you're seeing what kind of shape or condition the person before you is in. Like many people, I love the parable Jesus spoke regarding the prodigal son. Now, I know this is just a story, Although some scholars believe it's based on a true story. But in this story, there are little gems that I often think about. And for those that know me, you know I'm a bit of an outsider of the square. And there's one in there that I always look at and think, wow, how did that happen? Jesus says in this story, while the son was a long way off, the father saw him coming. He ran out and greeted him. He grabbed him. He hugged him and welcomed him back home. ever thought about this? How did the father recognise him from such a long way off? I mean, think about it. I can't help but think when the son returned home, he would have been in a much different shape than when he left. He would have been thinner, he would have been dirtier, and I'm sure he would have had a smell that wasn't good. But regardless of the shape he was in, the father recognised him when he was still a long way off. And the father loved him and welcomed him home. What shape are you in? Do you know? Well, let me tell you, God knows. God knows what shape you're in. He knows what response you can give him. He not only knows where you've been, he knows what shape you're in. The Bible says every one of us is in a bad shape. Because of sin, we are thinner, dirtier and smellier than what we should be. That's what we're taught. That's where we stand. That's the shape we're in. That's what the Bible teaches. Pretty depressing, right? Wrong. Always remember the two most powerful words in the Bible are but God. That's the shape you're in, but God. The Bible also teaches Jesus knows what shape or condition we're in, but even better than that, he teaches he knows what to bring. To help us in whatever shape we're in because of our sin. Do you remember the son's plans? He was going back to the father with one word in mind. Make. Make me one of your hired men. Make me go and live there. Make me so I can just go over there and be like that. But the father shouted out a different word. What word did the father shout out? Bring. Bring the best robe, the best rings, bring shoes, bring the fatted calf. The son had the idea of make me. The father was bring the best. We should never let whatever shape we're in keep us away from going to Jesus. Jesus knows the shape you're in. More than that, he knows what to bring to help you in whatever shape you are in. He still wants and brings the best for us. God knows what shape you're in, and he's still willing to shout out, bring the best to help us and make us whole. Thirdly this, he knows the effort you've made to save yourself. You may think that sounds a bit silly, but I think this is something we all fall for at times, trying to save ourselves. Well, let me ask you, how many of you do this? I know for me, I do it. How many of you sinned, felt bad, hit rock bottom and tried to do what the prodigal son did? A plan to go back with the father. As I said, I'm not sure if you do this, but I know I do. My plan tends to look like this. I will go and be good to someone or I'll make sure I'll go and do the right thing. I will try and do an act of love towards someone or do something nice for them. Or I'll make a new commitment to reading more every day. Or I'll make a new commitment to praying more every day. I do this to cover the pain of sin and failure. Do you come up with a plan to get back into God's good books? Have you tried? Have you tried any of these? Well, not sure about you, as I said. I have. And I know what happens with my plan. I fall flat on my face every time. Every time, I thought over and over and over again. I remember reading a story on the CNET website a few years ago about one of the editors, James Kim. I don't know if you know this story. Well, James and his wife, Katie, and their two young daughters left San Francisco for a holiday trip that was combined with work. After a visit to a family in Portland, the family intended to travel along State Highway 42 over the coast, but because of a severe storm, James missed his turn-off. The family drove around for quite some time before James mistakenly turned off onto a logging road later that evening. They were soon winding up in the mountains, and when they reached the highest elevation and a dead end, it began to snow. The Kim family became hopelessly lost, and finally became stranded in the snow. They decided to stay there for a while. The family ran the engine of the station wagon to keep the heater on, but soon the petrol ran out. They ate what little food they had and Katie continued to breastfeed her two daughters. After a week, I don't know why they waited that long, after a week of being stranded, James decided he's had enough and he ventured out on foot to seek help. James Kin put himself through a desperate ordeal He climbed down a ravine covered by boulders and logs going in and out of icy creeks, all in the effort to save his family and himself. Well, the good news is this. Katie and the girls were spotted and rescued two days after James left the car. The sad news is this. So was James's body. James's body was found two days as well after his wife and daughter had been rescued. James Kim tried to do the right thing. He not only wanted to save himself, he also wanted to save his wife and two girls. He put in a major effort. One of the lead rescuers called his effort superhuman. He said what James did when leaving that car and what he walked through was a superhuman effort. Wow, how good is that? A professional rescuer calling your effort superhuman doesn't get much higher than that. But even though he gave it at all, Even though he put in superhuman effort, his effort fell short. His superhuman effort failed. You see, his superhuman effort didn't save his family. His wife and daughters were saved not by his efforts. They were saved by the efforts of the rescuers. When it came to being saved or help in your spiritual life, you can put in a superhuman effort all you want. But let me tell you this. You can come up with the best plan possible to get into God's good books again, but it will fail. All your effort will fall short. God knows your effort. God knows the things you've done. He knows how hard you've tried, but he always knows how much you fail. That's why he is the master planner. When it comes to being saved in our spiritual life, we are always, always at the mercy of someone else. When it comes to being saved or in your spiritual life, you bring nothing to the table. The message Bible says about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, about the idea, can we save ourselves? No. Saving is all his, God's idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging about we'd done the whole thing. We all need a saviour. It doesn't matter how good you've been or who you decide to be nice to. It doesn't matter how much of a super effort you put in about reading your Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Only God can save. Only he can rescue us. In the physical world, not everyone who needs or faces a crisis and gets lost gets saved. We all saw the sad news of the walls built down the centre of towns with these floods. One side knew their house would be safe. The other side knew my house is going under. James King died. He made a valiant effort to save his family and himself. He gave it his best shot. He gave it his best effort, but he died in the process. The great news is this when we face crisis or if we get lost in our spiritual lives, we need an El Gabor. We need a God who is mighty to save. Isaiah was right. To us, one has been given. All we need to do is to reach out. I love the way the message Bible interprets Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls, help God, gets help. Where are you? How are you going spiritually? Are you meant to be where you are? Are you lost? Have you taken a wrong turn? Call to him and he will come and find you. We are told that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He didn't just come to save them, he came to seek them. Just like News Corp, Jesus looks for the hopeless, he looks for the ones that can't save themselves. Jesus seeks to save the ones that are in despair. For to us a child is given and he shall be called El Gabor. This child will be a God who is mighty strong to save us. Do you know this is exactly, exactly what we celebrate here at the Lord's table in what we call communion. And so while this is fresh in our minds, I want to invite the stewards up now because we're all going to celebrate our El Gabor together.